What conditions are stipulations? Magic tricks or manipulations interjecting conversations. Okay, so today we're going to talk about guns. This is part one of two on my Substack, which if you have not subscribed, please do. I would love to have you. It's free. Um, mkzjoybrennan.substack.com. TM. Um, it's called Don't Stand So Close to Me, which we'll explain in a second. But this is part one of two on interpreting the Second Amendment. Um, it's jurisprudential history and evolution and how that track record has facilitated lax gun laws like stand your ground laws, which is what the crux of this conversation is going to be. Um, a few thank yous up top to a 2017 episode of NPR's Radio Lab, A More Perfect Union. The episode, I believe, is called The Gun Show, wonderful history of the NRA and um, how we politically and historically got to where we are with the Second Amendment. Um, also, a thank you to Brooke Rogers, who is now an assistant editor at uh, the New York Post, and she worked with me on an episode about this a couple years ago for Exceedingly Persuasive. And finally, a thank you to my dead dad, who uh, wrote about originalism and on whom I relied heavily for some of this history. So, first, let's, uh, let's get into the three recent shootings that uh, all invoked and will probably invoke Stand Your Ground laws. So for better or worse, we will not be discussing Sting, despite the title, um, or his creepy fixation on school-age girls, especially given that he was formerly a teacher during this installment, nor the next one, but we will be touching on the police. <laughs> uh, last month, not funny, in the span of a few days, we heard stories of four unarmed young people making innocent mistakes and consequently being shot. The three shooters were in three different states, were all men and older than their victims, because demography is important. Um, race comes into play as well, at least with one. Um, <clears throat> and they were all potentially legally innocent in resorting to deadly force due to gun laws and stand-your-ground defenses. So in this two-parter, we're going to talk about stand-your-ground laws and a little bit about the Second Amendment. Bad news. Do you hear about the mass shooting outside Tulsa? Oh, terrible tragedy. Thoughts and prayers. We really have to do something about these men who just go No, PC, this time it was a woman. A woman mass shooter? Oh, no. That really is bad news. I just think this is what happens when you give women guns. They start shooting people with them. I mean, do they even know what guns are for? The eyes have it. Possession of any firearm is now illegal in the state of California. We did it, boys. I really thought that was going to go the other way. Wow, Diane. You just passed sensible gun legislation. I can't believe this country hates women more than it loves guns. A bit on the cases, um, at which we'll look a little more closely in the next installment, but just to, to intro the topic... So Ralph Jarl was a black teenager. He was 16. He was unarmed. Uh, he is 16. He's still alive. Uh, he was unarmed when he went to the wrong door in Kansas City, trying to pick up his younger brothers. He didn't even cross the threshold of the house, but the homeowner, who was an 84-year-old white man, still shot him in the head. 
Um, in Texas, we had a couple cheerleaders approaching the wrong car because they thought it was theirs in a parking lot at a grocery store after a cheerleading practice. The man in that car shot them both, and one girl is still in critical condition. Finally, we have a 20-year-old woman named Kaylin Gillis who pulled into a driveway in upstate New York after taking a wrong turn. She was shot and killed by the old white male homeowner. Obviously, each facet of our pro-gun legal landscape is uniquely upsetting, and the reason why these three stories confluence made headlines last month was their common theme of these new, strange, messy stand-your-ground laws. But it's hard to contemplate this current culture without taking a look, agape if you're like me and many of us, at how the Second Amendment became this unimpeachable, ironclad behemoth that it is today. Plus, uh, hey, why wait till the next mass shooting to talk about the Second? In the old US of A, there is always a relevant and horrific news story to reintroduce the conversation. So, the Second Amendment. And to throw back to our exceedingly persuasive episode title, well-regulated militia comes up in the text. What the hell's going on? Um, Though late to its national stardom, the Constitution's Second Amendment has a strange and storied jurisprudential history. For how frequently and heavily it's now relied upon, its interpretation was really considered settled for the two first centuries of its constitutional life, and that interpretation did not include any individual right to bear arms. So I'll let by, or I'll start by letting the bizarrely composed amendment speak for itself verbatim, and I will say, I will speak the comma placement out loud because that plays a big role. So, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Note here, since I'm reading it out loud, that well-regulated in militia does not have a hyphen, which is driving me and my Microsoft Word crazy. Um, what it lacks in hyphens, though, uh, it certainly makes up for in commas. Many folks, including the late Justice Scalia, who obviously loved the amendment and did a lot of work with it, uh, many can agree that the amendment is inscrutable, and its formation is really unique to the Constitution. In addition to begging questions like, what is up with all the commas, and what's the subject of the sentence, and thus the right that it's granting, it sure seems like the subject is well-regulated militia. It starts the sentence, it is arguably what applies to everything else, um, and that was the interpretation that stood for the first two centuries of our country and jurisprudence and constitutional interpretation. So, given though that there is still some ambiguity, we will take one more step back now, like those old Zoom books, to look at the interpretive tools that are used on constitutional amendments. To clarify inscrutable legal text or apply that text to new contexts, we sometimes have to consult certain extrinsic sources that are usually considered the best equipped to elucidate the meaning of things like the Constitution or other statutes. Um, these interpretive canons can include other provisions from the same document, uh, historical records or authorities, 
dictionaries, legislative history, prior applications of the laws, and the Constitution's more verbose contemporaries. You can likely guess where this is going. Um, such efforts at interpretation can get unsurprisingly really, really subjective and exploitable. That is especially true when A, none of those clarifying sources that I listed exist, or B, none of those sources are appropriately relied upon by political zealots who are interpreting the document and are motivated to cherry-pick sources in support of an existing bias that they may have. Conservatives who have made it to the highest court in recent decades have a few interpretive schools of thought that they apply to the Constitution, and they call them textualism and originalism. But with this nomenclature, the semantic propaganda has already started. Um, by calling themselves textualists, for one, who purport to rely first and foremost on the Constitution's text, conservative jurists belie the fact that all constitutional scholars are often forced to consult other sources when the Constitution's text, looking at you, Second Amendment, that we just read, fails to resolve interpretive conflicts on its own. Sometimes the text isn't enough, and that's why we're in the position of interpreting. Then you have originalism, which was the other, ironically, very new jurisprudential school of thought. It really only came into prominence in the 1980s, but that was the other school of thought responsible for rebranding the Second Amendment. The, the falsehood of that originalism flag was more adeptly explained by a certain constitutional scholar of whom I'm a big fan. Uh, Terry Brennan, my late dad, wrote... Constitutional interpretation justified by certain preferences of its enactors is variously labeled original intent, original understanding, or original meaning, depending in part on the optimism, credulity, or political preference of the observer. In other words, disguising your own radical biases with an irreproachable name like original intent that implies like some solemn historical accuracy is a lot like calling your fascist government the People's Democratic Republic. Ironically, there's also ample evidence that the originals themselves, the Constitution's framers, didn't want their intent or interpretation to be fixed and used to inform future meaning. <clears throat> the, uh, the Constitution was meant to be a living document, which is a phrase I'm sure you've heard, is now also really debated, but in fact, the Constitution's author, Thomas Jefferson, directly addressed how to interpret old laws. And I know TJ had serious foibles of his own, but he did do some good foundational document drafting, all things considered. And he actually acknowledges here his own barbary. So uh, he wrote, laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind, quoth TJ. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, and as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, and opinions change, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat which fitted him when a boy as a civilized society to remain ever under the regimen of their barbarous ancestor. So keep that quote in your back pocket to deploy next time some crusty old bigot waxes on about gays or women or whatever, because I certainly do. You may ask, uh, wouldn't all this chaste originalist 1780s spirit actually help when looking at the Second Amendment by 
at least limiting the type of firearms supposedly protected. After all, a musket took, like, multiple minutes to reload one round. Good question, I would respond, but you are of course wrong, because the People's Republic of Originiformia is buttressed with bad faith, not logic. In any case, uh, that is our introductory foray into the thinking that our conservative-leaning SCOTUS has relied on to retool and expand the Second Amendment over the last 15 years or so, from 2008's DC versus Heller to last year 2022's New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. I think I'm related to some Bruins in the past. I feel like maybe I should look into that. I don't don't know. Anyways, uh, we'll come back to these cases because they are the most direct facilitator of lax gun laws and thus all these shootings themselves. But before we do that, how, how did the gun movement, this thinking, the money get to the political place that has motivated the court to where we are today? And is this really just our endemic national culture? No. (laughs) So let's talk about the NRA. While it's become inexorably clear to a lot of us in recent years that the National Rifle Association, or NRA, has blood on its hands, it's interesting to look closely at the org's provenance. So, the NRA originated for Union soldiers, which is funny, um, to do target practice in the Civil War. Its founder was actually, again, funny, a New York Times reporter. After the war, the NRA swiftly pivoted to even more apolitical work, which is funny to all of us, knowing who it is today. Um, They did work like gun safety training, uh, helping... Boy Scouts and outdoors folk, uh, you know, a lot of camping, hunting, fishing type activities. Uh, There, the NRA languished with dwindling relevance and funding for many years until they faced, you know, bankruptcy and a necessary rebrand by the 1970s. And during that time, they actually considered removing the rifle from their name altogether because it had become so irrelevant. That brings us, though, to a contemporaneous moment, which is California in the 1970s, where there had been, in shocking, super original news, several high-profile police shootings of black men. So the Black Panthers, in response there, as a strategy to fight back against this spree of police killing, had begun reading up on state and local laws, exercising awareness of their rights as citizens, and arming themselves, but doing so legally citing the Second Amendment to undergird their right to own and use firearms in self-defense. So (laughs) this movement made white conservatives and other racists very scared at the prospect of black Americans wielding any power, as always happens. And as we know, fear tends to turn to anger and aggression in the emotionally stunted. Again, ironically, uh, conservatives at that time thus positioned themselves against the idea that the Second Amendment contained any individual civilian right to carry or own firearms. That led to the introduction of the Mulford Act in California, which codified that interpretation in response to the Black Panthers. And there's actually a great soundbite of Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California at this time saying as much, saying that 
the Second Amendment does not give people a right to individually carry guns, but the times they are changing. As, as we explore this whole history, it's really relevant, again, to underscore the disparate responses, not just by the government and law enforcement bodies, which we may be more familiar with, but the NRA as well, to gun rights among different races. Of course, it's not new news at all that black and brown Americans carrying guns or even suspected of doing so are more likely to be seen as a threat and thus a justification for deadly force by other civilians or law enforcement. But I think less familiar examples of this bias are found in what the NRA hasn't done, which is defend victims of color who are armed or who disclose owning a legal gun that's not on their person, you know, sometimes it's in a glove compartment and it's like, hey, I have this, so please don't kill me, essentially. Or even carrying a toy gun, things like that, and are then killed by police. These black and brown victims are not posthumously defended as good American gun owners by the NRA, and in these cases there's no organizational outcry as there would be with white gun-owning victims. So in short, should anyone doubt the institutional racism of the NRA, especially given the Second Amendment's ironic Black Panther connection, and in the gun rights movement at large, look at any and all stories about gun-owning but indefensibly killed Black victims of police or even societal violence. Since our examination, this like big two-parter, is eventually going to reach yet another racist killing, of Ralph Yarl, this time an unarmed black child, and also further facilitated by lax gun laws that were paved to where they are now by the NRA, this point bears repeating again and again in the Second Amendment's history. But anyhow, uh, we left our anti-heroes, hello Taylor Swift fans, um, somewhere at the end of the 20th century opposing the Second Amendment having an individual right to firearms. At the time, that had been, again, the prevailing interpretation of the Second Amendment for centuries. And conceptualizing that is hard now, both because we never hear about how quickly things have changed. It's kind of just become accepted that the conservatives can rebrand this, but also because modern culture doesn't really feature state militias in the way that late 1700s culture did. Indeed, before the Reagan-era pivot, the Second Amendment and these antiquated concepts were kind of seen as akin to the Third Amendment, you know, as, as obsolete as the protection against having to quarter soldiers in your home, which is what the Third talks about. But then, um, as they are wont to do, conservatives did an abrupt 180 flip, and this is by the time that once California governor, individual arms right disavower Ronald Reagan, ran for president. And at that time, you know, he's an actor without any serious policy chops. Does that pave the way for anybody? Um, he had made, you know, to get where he was, the proverbial deal with the devil. In the devil, read fundamentalist religious right <laughs> and its myriad socially conservative lobbies. And the deal involved Reagan appeasing their policy demands to win the presidential election, and like consequently decimating social policy to this day, but I digress. The NRA felt this tide turning amidst their rebranding effort, 
And they too leapt on the opportunity to ride the radical political movement's financial wave. And I don't know, the the complete ideological inversion it, it like makes zero sense, except when you consider the principles such as they are that undergird a lot of modern conservative beliefs. And again, we're not looking at logic, we're looking at things like racism, fear, isolation, paranoia, and this other-ism of us versus them. So I guess it, it does make sense in that respect, uh, in the sense that it doesn't make sense. But after that, uh, you know, Reagan plus NRA rebranding plus religious right, the other shoes, a lot of them, dropped quickly from there. In 1991, you have, you know, a lot more could be said about this man, but also a gun enthusiast, Clarence Thomas. He lands on the Supreme Court. In 2000, you have President G.W. Bush's attorney general, John Ashcroft. Um, He was another big gun guy. He, as attorney general to the president, issued an unsolicited Justice Department memo, which is essentially a non-binding, but you know, carries persuasive weight of the bully pulpit of the presidency. And it's, like, supposed to provide guidance through a document on how a president's Justice Department has interpreted a law and how they intend to apply it. Usually this applies to, or this is only done when there's, you know, a law that's newly in question or is unclear or something has come up in the news surrounding it, but this was just... I for all intents and purposes, because Ashcroft and the Bush milieu was very pro-gun. The memo pretty much uh, unceremoniously declared that the administration recognized an individual right in the Second Amendment, and then just peace. So (laughs) that's the 90s to 2000s. Thus came we to DC versus Heller, 2008. So the Supreme Court took up the NRA-sponsored challenge, in this case, to a Washington, D.C. law that banned handguns. Initially, the NRA and their co-sponsor in the case, the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank, they were struggling to find a plaintiff with appropriate standing. Now, standing is a constitutional requirement for getting through the door of any courtroom. So just filing, being able to maintain a case, you need standing. And that requires that the party bringing a case has to have, like, a tangible personal stake in the outcome. They have to have been personally injured in a way that's more substantial and unique than this has been a ruling about standing in the past, like an average taxpayer's stake in where tax dollars go. That type of thing affects people equally and kind of indirectly and passively. You need more of a stake in the outcome and you need more injury to show from whatever you're suing about. Hopefully that explains it in a very quick, pat way. Anyways, so the search for plaintiffs to challenge this DC law yielded, you know, initially a lot of fine, upstanding citizens, different backgrounds, um, interested in representing the pro-gun side of the case, but none of those folks had a justiciable injury sufficient to get standing. For most of them, just by example, the law's impact 
and thus the examination of standing was all just like conceptual and perspective things like I would really like a gun but I can't get one and that wasn't a tangible injury enough you know standing goes hand in hand with things like injury damages ripeness like is it time to bring the case has the injury happened yet all these things go together um, and for a lot of these prospective plaintiffs, there wasn't enough immediate, distinctively personal harm that they could show at that point. <clears throat> but, you know, who did experience personal consequences due to the D.C. law, at least sufficient to get standing, our friend Dick Heller. So let's go through his sad tale, because it really pulls at the heartstrings. So a DC resident, Dick Heller, had a precious little baby gun of his own, and he really, really loved it. He said it looked like a cowboy gun. He said, and I am quoting, that he liked to caress it. So when the DC law passed, Heller was forced injuriously to take that sweet little gun of his all the way to his brother's home in nearby Maryland, where it could, you know, live in freedom and frolic with other guns, things like that. Dick Heller couldn't keep his gun at home, injury and instead had to visit it custodially across state lines. This is real. He really said that he visited it at his brother's home. So due to this star-crossed infatuation, he sought to license the gun in DC where he lived and received a formal rejection from doing so based on this new law. So uh, voila, I guess, standing for DC versus Heller to get all the way up to the Supreme Court and infamy for rootin' tootin' cowboy Dick Heller. Dick Heller is also a virulent racist. Never would have guessed that. Um, that is a story for another day, but I will refer you to the gun show episode that I mentioned up top. They have some recordings of him. It's a lot of fun. Anyways, uh, the DC versus Heller decision was a massive legal step towards the pro-gun direction in which America still careens it overruled that precedential, militia-focused interpretation of the Second Amendment that dated all the way back to the Constitution's drafting. And it did so all in the name of original intent, which is really fucking funny. Um, in the 5-4 to four majority decision, so again, even back then you had a narrow but conservative majority, Justice Scalia declared without citing any of that famous textualist or originalist evidence, that it is very clear that the operative phrase in the Second Amendment's text was the portion that is in the middle between many commas that says the right of the people to keep and bear arms. It's a, looking strictly at the text, which I do recommend folks do again and look at this portion and where it stands, the words in front of us, you look at them in total isolation, a textual approach, if you will, you can certainly, to be charitable, debate the clarity of his conclusion. But uh, there you had it. With those strokes of the proverbial pen, the Second Amendment took on an individual right to bear arms in 2008. Heller still qualified that there was a limit to the Second Amendment. It didn't hold that state or federal laws could never regulate, you know, the where, how, and who of gun purchasing and ownership, and it left room for legal limits on things like types of guns, licensing, timing, um, locations of purchase, ownership qualifications, things like that. In other words, um, Heller didn't establish an absolute right 
which is fair enough. I mean, the same goes for all of those other first 10 Bill of Rights rights, like speech, which we've talked about in the no yelling fire. Um, A lot of the limits on those rights are based on that whole concept of my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins idea, that your freedom can be limited when and where it may affect others' freedoms and may harm other people. So uh, we'll leave part one here on that ominous note. Can you guess what further step was taken in last year's Banner Gun case? Because it removed a lot of those limits. So next time we will talk about 2022's uh, New York State and Rifle, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case, and then these stand your ground laws and how they've affected a lot of people just going to the wrong place. God forbid you leave your home. Um, I do want to thank again here at the end, Brooke Rogers for working on this episode with me back in 2019, NPR's Radio Lab, More Perfect Union, and my dad, uh, who is cool and dead. Um, again, if you've reached the end of this and you have not yet subscribed to my Substack, I would love to have you. And it is still mkzjoybrennan.substack.com. Um, I think that's right. And I love you. Don't get shot. Don't shoot people. I'm